We are in uh, lesson seven, the creation of man, uh, man in the general sense, the creation of people. And in our book, we're going to be um, referring a little bit to page 163 is kind of where we're going to be picking up. Because last time we talked about the different organs of the soul um, and talked about the fact that, that human beings are both body and soul. And that I think on 163, he has a nice description of, um, of some terminology that's going to be helpful when we talk about the essential versus the accidental. Um, essential characteristics versus the accidental characteristics. So um, on the, the page that we're using, at the bottom it says, Lesson 7, Grace Abounds, the Creation of Man, or at the very top, the Creation of Man. Um, and we're going to refer briefly to page 163 in your textbook, if you have that nearby. And so this, this segment of theology is something that we call um, anthropology talking about the study of man or the study of people, um, not in the same way that, you know, somebody pursues a degree in anthropology at a university, but because um, they, they, they study people in a very different way. Uh, we study people on the basis of especially Genesis 1 and 2, and then the implications that that will have for, um, for our Jesus becoming incarnate, um, and that'll come in later. So on page 163, uh, that first full paragraph, it says the attributes of Adam and Eve um, and this is the, the, the helpful part. As noted earlier, everything that exists has attributes or characteristics. Some attributes are essential, that is, they define or are part of a definition of the thing that exists. Should that attribute be lost, the thing defined by it would no longer exist as such. Some attributes are accidental attributes, that is, they describe something. Should that some, something lose an accidental attribute, it would continue to be what it was, just somewhat altered. In God, there are no accidental attributes. All of his attributes are his essence. He can never lose any of them. However, everything else in the visible world has both types, essential and accidental attributes. All that to say in a little bit different way. Um, what is it that makes you and me human? is kind of the big question that, that we're going to be talking about tonight um, and then the implications of that. So just uh, we'll give you a minute or two, uh, maybe with those seated nearby, um, either from your own memory bank or what you read, what is it that makes us human, essentially human? And what is it that humans have to have in order to be human? Or what are the essential characteristics of, of being human? I'll give you a minute or two to think of that. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Yeah. A body and soul, um, plain and simple. And so it doesn't matter if, if somebody is born with, um, is some, if somebody is born with one less limb or if they, if they lose a limb during their lifetime, they're still, they're still human. Um, doesn't matter if they are asleep or in a coma or um, have experienced some sort of uh, mental incapacity. Um, as long as they are still living, they are a human. Um, those other things are, are what we would call accidental attributes. Um, normally, we, we think of that like accident, like you, know, you have a car accident or somebody has an accident. Um, but the, the definition is still there where it's something that, that is unnatural, that you know, maybe wasn't, wasn't part and parcel of driving down the road. Like if you're driving down the road and you have an accident, it wasn't intended, but you're still driving down the road. If you have an accident and somebody loses an arm, um, you, there's, it wasn't intended, but it just kind of happened. Um, when we use that term accidental attributes, when we're talking about people, um, we're talking about all the variety of ways in which body and soul shows up um, as, as, a, as a human, human being, human person. Um, so that includes people of different ethnic, 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 I can't even say it, ethnic, ethnic backgrounds. <laughs> there we are. Ethnicities. 
Um, it includes various stages of development. It includes different mental capabilities. Um, it includes different um, diseases or disorders or, or abilities. Um, it includes other physical impairments. Um, but the, the baseline you know, starting point for the Bible is that the value of a person depends on the fact that a person is essentially body and soul. And the value of a person is predicated on the value God has placed on that person. And so there's the double value that, that God has created the person and that the son of God has died for that person, that the son of God, Jesus Christ, became a human um, and died for all people. Um, so that gives us two, two very basic reasons for our understanding of the value of humans. Um, and so together with that, then that also, that also even influences the decisions we make um, and the way that we talk about the beginning of life and the decision making at the end of life, um, such as the beginning of life that where there is, um, where there is a body and soul, there's a person. And so even in the early stages of development, um, we'll get to that with the term traducianism in just a moment, in the very early stages of development, even though that, that person doesn't have all the abilities or capabilities that a grown adult might have, they're no less essentially human. Um, or later in life, just because that person now isn't able to do the sort of things that they may have done previously, um, or that person spends more time sleeping and less time walking around than you or I do, um, yeah, that's kind of cool, um, that doesn't make them any less essentially human. And even if, even if there's a case where dementia of some sort takes away some of their mental capabilities, that doesn't make them less essentially human. Um, those things are all just the accidental characteristics. Questions? Yeah. Definitely. Um, that that the advancement of of medicine has made has made a lot of decisions possible that in previous generations wouldn't have existed, um, and that's that's a blessing. And it also calls for a little bit more discernment, um, where. You know, our, our kind of standard for whether somebody is still alive or not is, um, is brain activity. Um, and, and, and usually when, <laughs> I guess we'll just, we'll just pause there because there's a lot more that could be said about that. Um, but that when we get to the end of life, one of the questions that helps usually is, are we, are we preserving life or are we prolonging death? Um, that, that is a question that has come up um, to be more helpful, especially with helping people understand you know, when their loved one is in a particular condition. Because um, usually, and you've probably seen this, especially if, if you've worked in, you know, visited people in the hospital or nursing home or had a loved one go through it or you work in medicine, um, that when the body starts to shut down, there's usually a cascading series of events that happen. Um, and like in most cases, um, there, there comes a point when, you know, giving somebody fluids will only, will only make their condition worse. Um, or there, there comes a place where the doctors or the care team says, you know, it's time to move somebody into hospice care. Um, and our approach spiritually and theologically is to say, we want to do all we can to preserve the dignity of this person as a human being and to leave the decision of, of death and the final moment of death up to God. Um, which means, you know, that's where hospice care, and I've worked with a, a number of very wonderful hospice nurses, um, are, they, they can be very helpful in providing an extra measure of comfort during, during those last, you know, two weeks to six weeks, um, as, well as, as well as an extra measure of dignity. Um, where this goes off the rails is the, the push, especially in the Nordic countries and now, and now throughout most of Europe, is the ability to, um, to demand your own death on your own terms. Um, and that, that <laughs> again, that's, I guess that's another discussion. It's been in my mind a lot lately because it's been in the news a lot. Um, but for, for the Christian, the, the starting point is that we are, in essence, body and soul that is essentially human. And since God is the one who gives the soul and God is the one who gives life, then we want to do what we can to demonstrate respect for God's timing while also demonstrating um, a measure of care and compassion for that person. 
Um, and so that's, you know, whenever, whenever somebody goes on hospice care, um, you know, it's always the question, should we stay at the hospital here or should we, you know, take grandma home? Um, and my, my answer normally has been, you know, if if you're at the hospital, they, they won't kick, they won't kick you out. (laughs) It's, it's always good to, to be there. Um, it is more challenging to have somebody at home for those, those last days in particular. Um, but if there's a, if there's an ability to have that person at home, that is, that is a slight preference, at least in my books. That's my opinion. I try to try to refrain my opinions a little bit, Tim. Yeah. And that's a good question. And, and I mean, the, the short answer is um, February 19th, Jeff Samuelson from Christian Life Resources will be here and they have a fantastic website. You're welcome. Every time, every time. Um, the, the slightly longer answer is that, is that in a case where, where either, of those, either of those might be permissible. Um, but what you're talking about is the motive, motivation behind each. Like there was, there was one man at my home congregation. He was, um, he, he became Sunday school superintendent and, and the pastor told him, pastor at the time said, well, you can stop being Sunday school superintendent when you get married. And he was a bachelor until he was 68. <laughs> and, uh, and so he was Sunday school, school, school superintendent for like 45 years. Um, and, and then he was diagnosed with, um, you know, some sort of, some sort of a blood cancer later in life. And they said, well, here's the treatment options. We could do radiation, chemo and, and go on down the line. Or we could just, if we don't do anything, then, you know, six weeks to six months. And, um, and at, at the time he just said, you know what, I've, I've lived a pretty full life and, um, and I'm happy with where I'm at. And, and he was, he was totally comfortable and, um, and, decided in his own mind to say that he would not pursue the treatment path. And, uh, and then he just lived out his days and, um, and it was a little bit less than six months and he had passed away. Um, and so I guess, and that's something else we'll, we'll talk about a little bit in our Sunday morning um, family Bible hour, that how do we work through decision-making on this? Um, that the biggest thing is the, the motivation and the, the decision behind it. Um, has to precede the actual decision that one makes. Yeah. Yeah, there, there are actually, we'll, we'll talk about that one for sure in our, our Sunday morning Bible class as well. Cause um, there's like, there's like a five-step process that, that I want to help our people understand, like what are the, the five things that we have to think through um, when making some of these more difficult decisions. And it's actually very similar to the, the things that we want to have in our mind when we talk about making a confession of our faith to somebody. So I guess my answer is to say, um, you should email me that one. And if we don't talk about it in Family Bible Hour, we'll talk about it on Q&A Sunday. Um, so then together with that, when we talk about essential attributes of human, uh, of being human, we see that um, sin in and of itself is not an essential attribute of being human, that Adam and Eve were fully human even before the fall into sin. And as a result, that Jesus Christ is fully human, even though he d- does not have a sinful nature, does not have a sinful flesh, um, even though he was born from a sinful mother. Uh, the other term that we have um, that kind of comes into play here, I guess, is maybe a page or two later. When we talk about, um, we didn't talk about this last time. We talk about the when we talk about the body and soul, and we talk about the creation of the soul. Maybe I forget where we see that. The term is traducianism, and if there are any gardeners among us. Um, it comes from, comes from a word for strawberries, <laughs> page 168. Thank you. Um, that toward the bottom of that first big paragraph on page 168, um, traducianism. And so this, this gets into the creation of the soul and where do, where do souls exist? Because what we, what we have to biblically understand or have an, what we want to have an answer for is um, how do we explain original sin being passed down from parent to child? 
And so it's not as though there's a bank of souls up in heaven um, that God created before time began, and then he just doles them out to bodies. Um, because we, you know, for a couple of reasons, number one, God rested on the seventh day and he, and he stopped his creating activity on the seventh day. Um, secondly, if there were some sort of a bank of souls that God then distributed to all the, uh, the babies when, in, when he gave them life, um, then that would in some degree make God responsible for original sin. Um, because sin is a characteristic of, of the soul or it's bound into our human soul, um, as well as, as well as our human flesh, obviously. Um, and so that word that we use to kind of describe it is traducianism. Um, and if you're, the word comes from the word tradux, T-R-A-D-U-X is the, the name for the root or the shoot that a strawberry plant sends out to plant new strawberries. Um, and so traducianism um, basically says that, that God uses the mother and the father to create a, a new soul um, in cooperation with the creative activity that he has endowed them with. Um, and that through that mother and father, he creates the new soul and the new body of this new person. Um, and in that creative process, that person also receives um, the sinful flesh that he or she inherits from their father or their parents, if you want to generalize it. Um, and so that's, that's that term traducianism. And I think it, it, it is at least helpful um, because that's where we often talk about original sin. Um, and we'll talk about this more probably in the next chapter when we talk about original sin, that there's, that there's two things. We talk about the original guilt of sin, which is that each person is directly guilty of Adam's sin. Um, and we, we see that especially in Romans chapter 5, that each person is, that every person from Adam until Moses died, even though they had not broken the one command, do not eat from this tree. Um, and so, and so that is proof that God used that one command as the standard of judgment. And, and yes, people were doing all sorts of sin between the time of Adam and Moses, but it's only at Mount Sinai that God actually spoke and gave more law, even though there is the conscience that is more than enough to hold people accountable. Um, Paul says in Romans chapter 5, that the fact that all people died from Adam to Moses is proof that God held them accountable of Adam's sin. So that's the direct guilt that each person receives directly from Adam. There's also the generational passing of um, the actual original sin, what we call actual sin, I suppose, um, where each person inherits that inclination towards sin and that willingness to sin. Um, so that we aren't just guilty of Adam's sin, but that that sin now lives within each of us as a as a parent to child generational reality, um, and so that's where and where that where that comes together with you know the creation of the soul and what it what makes us essentially human. That's where in Psalm 51, when David says, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, um, what he's saying is that he was sinful from, from the very moment his life began. And when he says, I was sinful at birth, and then sinful from my, the time my mother conceives me, he isn't saying a direct parallel there. He's referring to something before being born when he talks about conception. Uh, the word there is... Um, it's not related to holding a child. It's a different word entirely. Um, and so then together with that, what we have in Psalm 51 is that where there is sin, there's also life. When we talk about people in this world today. And the fact that David can say that he was sinful from conception and sinful from you know, this time before he was born is also proof that David was um, essentially human even with the accident, as we call it, of original sin, and that, and that David was alive because dead things don't have sin. Dead things can't have sin. Um, and so, you know, by, by example, I guess, to, to kind of bring that full circle, to think of the idea of essence or essential attributes versus accidental attributes. Um, my dad was, he, he worked as an electrical design engineer, um, so he, like he designed things for, 
like water, wastewater treatment plants. He designed control boards. And, uh, and to me, like electricity is just black magic. You don't, you don't mess with it, <laughs> but he would, he would go to work every day. And as your typical electrical engineer, he wore, you know, some large glasses and a short sleeve white button up shirt with a tie and a pocket protector. And, and you could, you could almost see it. And, um, and he wore that pocket protector, you know, faithfully for a good 30 or 40 years um, because he always carried a lot of pens and because he didn't want a big ink splotch on these shirts. Because if a pen explodes, that's not part of the essence of the shirt. It's an accident or it's an accidental attribute of the shirt, but you still can't scrub it out. That no matter what you use, you can't scrub out that that stain, um, even though it's not part of what makes the shirt a shirt. It is um, it is an accident. It's a, a later addition, and that's that's kind of the analogy that we would use for describing our sinful flesh. That it's not part of the essence of who we are, it's just like it's not part of the essence of the shirt, but it is something that you and I cannot scrub out on our own. That we can't clean out on our own, and that's um. That's what God uses death to really, you know, bring about. He was as a blessing for you and for me, where he finally puts the sinful flesh to death. I think that covers most of what we talked about or wanted to talk about in regard to body and soul. Um, that opens up a whole host of other questions that we will eventually get to in one forum or another. Um, but I think some of that that baseline understanding that and our and that our understanding is that. Um, that God creates a soul and, and, and bestows that soul through the creative action of the mother and father together. Um, that's, that's together with part, and, part of traducianism, that that is where God creates the soul and bestows the soul on this, on this makes it become a living being. Okay. Hopefully I covered everything, <laughs> at least for now. All right, uh, we will look at Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. If you have a Bible nearby. Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27, God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that crawls on the earth. God created the man in his own image, and the image of God he created him. Male and female, he created them. All right. So in verse 26, you see a little bit of what God had uh, referred to I guess back in verse 24, that's a little bit clearer. Back in verse 24, you see the three basic divisions of land creatures, um, the livestock, the creeping things, and the wild animals. That's about as, as literal as you can get. Livestock, you know, talking about domesticated creatures, creeping things, every, um, you know, snakes and slithering things and a variety of bugs and insects, um, and then wild animals like everything else. Okay, so using um, our reading guide, I'll give you a minute or two looking at with those seated nearby. Uh, what is what is unique about uh, verses 26 and 27, either in this particular context, you know, in, in all of Genesis one or in what God specifically says in these verses? I'll give you a little bit to think of that, review that. All right. Hopefully I gave you just a minute or two. Well, it wasn't two minutes, but a little bit of time to think through that. Um, what is unique about these passages, either in the context of, of creation or what God specifically says here? What would be one? Yeah. Definitely. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Um, and, and that the, the word image and likeness are singular. Um, so it's like, it, it's a singular and it's a plural at the same time. Almost like timeout, God's like letting us see that he's both three and one at the same time. Excellent. What else? Here. 
Yeah. In every every other part of creation, um, throughout all of chapter one, and God said, and there was. God said, let the land produce living creatures, and they just started bubbling up out of the ground. Um, and and this is this is different. Um, where in verse 26, well, there's a few things in verse 26 and then verse 27. Anything else that we see? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Definitely. Yeah, he is he is of a of a kind totally separate from all evil. And and my guess would be where he uses that term passion, um, probably referring <laughs> some sometimes like writers do this where they they use the English word, but what they really mean is the Latin word behind it. Um, so passion means like suffering. He is free from all, from all suffering. Um, and when he talks about the image of God, where he, he completely has, you know, this ability to not sin and, and there's no, there's no, there's nothing within him that says that is what I want to do. I want to go along with this temptation, um, where he's completely free and separate from that. Anything else, Joe? Yeah. And that this, this likeness of God, um, where God delegates some of his authority to this, this creature that he has created. Um, and so, and, and together with that, you know, that chapter one gives us the overview and then chapter two zooms in on the important part um, that here in chapter one, he gives us the overview, but he makes it apparent that he's talking about man and woman in, in the creation of man and woman. And then verse chapter two, he's going to talk about the creation of man of woman specifically, but that in, in that regard where all of creation is subservient to God, um, God has delegated some of that same authority to, to Adam so that, so that he is in charge of a portion of it. Yeah. Um, because, the fact that God is spirit and he, he at a couple of times in old Testament history, he did take on a form of some sort, um, such as the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of cloud fire by night. Um, yeah, the burning bush, um, the cloud in the, the temple or the tabernacle, um, the three men talking with, talking with Abraham. Yeah. Yeah. So th- there are very various ways in which God took on a form to reveal himself to, to humans and to interact with his creation. Um, but it's not until the incarnation of the son of God that he has a, 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 an ongoing permanent image, an ongoing permanent form in that, you know, Jesus became incarnate nine months before Christmas and he retains his humanity um, through all eternity. And so he, you could say, you know, when we talk about Jesus, um, that he's a 2000 something year old Jewish man, um, as well as the eternal son of God. Um, but the fact that, you know, when we have in Genesis chapter one, talking about the image of God and God is spirit. And we see that throughout all of chapter one, that clues us in that this image of God is more than just, um, more than just appearance and some sort of physical manifestation, um, that this image of God has is primarily a spiritual component. Um, and then when we go on to uh, a couple more chapters and Adam and Eve have, have a son, um, Cain, and then we hear that Cain is born in Adam's image, um, and yet Cain is still essentially human, then this image of God must be something that, that isn't exactly um, it doesn't, it doesn't exactly pertain to what it means to be human or not human. Um, but it is, it is something that God has given to us. Um, and it's something that can be lost that has a spiritual characteristic. And so I think that the next few questions will enlighten us that when we talk about the image of God, what we're talking about is this righteousness and holiness, um, holiness being like this, this action, this activity that does what God wants, this righteousness being the, um, the objective reality, kind of like the, the verdict of being righteous. Um, and so it's this image of God is knowing what God wants and wanting what God wants and doing what God wants. 
um, which is um, in your book, that's that the Latin phrase that he tucked in there on page 169 in that second full paragraph. Um, where, where he just, uh, tucked in like one third of it. <laughs> it's actually, it's actually a little bit more than that. Um, uh, but on page 169, that second full paragraph in the parentheses in italics, where at the very beginning, Adam and Eve were pasa non pecare. So that's able to not sin. Um, and so at the very beginning, Adam and Eve were able to not sin. After the fall, Adam and Eve were not able to not sin and then after the you know the sermon at the tree um they where god brought them back to repentance and faith they were able to not sin and then eventually in heaven you and i will be not able to sin so there's there's like four different variations and it comes across so much better in Latin, but it's it's not exactly coming right now. It's more fun to put out on a board that at the very beginning, all people were able to not sin. After the fall, people are not able to not sin, or in other words, only able to sin. After being brought to faith, Christians are again able to not sin. And then once we're in heaven, we will be not able to sin. So we'll be confirmed in holiness and unable to sin. So talking about the image of God, um, this part in Genesis chapter one, sorry, I should stay on track a little bit more. So we've got um, a couple of things that we, that we picked out there already. Um, and I think those were, those were the main ones that I was thinking of, um, that within context of Genesis chapter one, verses 26 and 27 are different. Um, they're different in kind from the way that God created the rest of the animals. And that clues us in that human beings are uh, different in kind from all the other creation. Um, and that God delegates some of his authority for the stewardship of this creation to Adam and Eve. Um, and that that stewardship is connected to the image of God. Um, God created the man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And so that question, you know, now that we've talked a little bit about what is, what makes us essentially human body and soul, um, then what is this image of God? We're talking about the spiritual component, um, of, of human beings and their ability to, to know, to understand and to go along with what God, uh, has said in his, in his word and in his will. Um, so basically in, in what degree? Do the, you know, we talked about the organs of the soul, such as our, our reason, our emotion, and our will. To what degree do those three things conform to the reason, emotion, and will of God in, in our own lives? I think that that's at least helpful. Um, we'll go to Genesis chapter 5. I'll try to keep this somewhat chronological. Uh, Genesis chapter 5, verses 1, 2, and 3. And the, the other interesting thing, if you ever look at the book of Genesis, Moses does this throughout the whole book. He starts with the overview, and then he zooms in on the important part. He does that with, um, with Adam, with Noah, with Abraham, and with Abraham's family. Uh, so Genesis chapter 5, this is the account about the development of Adam's family. In the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God or in the image of God. He created them male and female and blessed them. And on the day they were created, he named them mankind. Adam lived 130 years, and he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his own image, and he named him Seth. So at the very beginning, Adam and Eve were created in the image of God with the likeness of God. And now, after the fall into sin, what do we see about their son? Yeah. Yeah, in Adam's image, where Adam has um, Adam doesn't have the image of God um, in such a way that he can pass it on to his to his son, to his child. All right, um, and that's I guess that's, that's that helps us to see that the image has been lost between you know Genesis one and two and Genesis five. The big thing being the fall into sin in Genesis three. Why did Cain and Abel? Cain and Abel was uh, the previous chapter. Yeah. 
that's uh, that's chapter four. Uh, we just kind of skipped over. We skipped over chapter four. Um, so if we go ahead to Genesis chapter nine. Genesis chapter nine, verse six. Um, and this is, this is after the flood and after they have landed on Mount Ararat and God puts the rainbow in the sky and verse six, he says, whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed for God made man in his own image. And so that, that at least opens up our eyes to see that, you know, part of the value that God has placed on humans is the fact that at the very beginning, um, that he created people in his own image, that he created people to be distinct from the animals and from the rest of his creation. And this passage um, in, our, in our study guide is um, in conjunction with James 3 verse 9. So maybe we'll read that one and then we'll talk about it a little bit. So you're thinking toward the end of the New Testament, um, if you run into Hebrews, it should be right after it. Say that Hebrews is the last big book before you get to Revelation, and then James is right after that. James 3, verse 9. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, so if you want to know anything about the book of James, um, James is written to believers who, um, who have been lazy in practicing their faith. <laughs> that's, the, that's the short synopsis of it, and he will light your hair on fire. Um, but verse 9, um, verse 8 and 9, I suppose. Verse 8, but no one is able to tame the human tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. So, referring back to Genesis 9, where, um, where Noah was told, you know, by man shall his blood be shed, for people were made in the image of God or in the likeness of God. And this part from James 3, uh, what can we also deduce about um, this, this image of God or this likeness of God? What are some, at least some possibilities? All right. Excellent. And it, yeah, I think that's a fantastic starting point that, that people deserve respect. Um, not just, and because they are made in the likeness of God, that that's, that's part of who we are. Definitely. Even if that, even if that likeness isn't, isn't fully realized, um, you know, with, with somebody as an unbeliever, you know, there's, there's no limit in Genesis 9 or in James 3 to say, well, you know, if somebody sheds the blood of a believer, well, then by man shall his blood be shed, um, because this image is restored to a degree among believers. Um, he doesn't say that. He says that if, if, the, if a person is killed, then that person may be put to death, um, the, the murderer maybe, because um, people deserve respect as people who are made in the image or the likeness of God. All right, the next one, uh, Colossians 1 verse 5. So that's a little bit ahead of Hebrews. So Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So you're thinking Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, or Romans, yeah, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Acts, Romans, Corinthians. All right, uh, Colossians one verse fifteen. I guess we'll rewind to um, to verse thirteen. Talking about, talking about the Son of God. And the Father rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created in heaven and on earth, things seen and unseen, etc. 
So here, um, we're not talking, you know, specifically about the image of God as, as human beings carry the image of God, but we're talking about Jesus as the one who is the perfect image of God. Um, yeah. Yeah. no um right now right now we're just kind of closing in a little bit more tightly on how do we define the image of god and and how do we arrive at that biblically um as far as you know seth being in adam's image or cain and abel and the other children being in adam's image um they have they have lost the the perfect will that is perfectly in line with god's will and instead of instead of you know being able to not sin and instead of knowing god's will perfectly and wanting to obey it perfectly um instead the children are born with this original sin uh, or sinful flesh whereby they are naturally inclined toward evil and aside from the restraints of law that are imposed they will continue to do only evil all the time um that's the the spiritual character of their soul that even though they are they are completely human both body and soul just that they are born they are born unbelieving and they are born um wanting to sin and only able to sin uh, without the ability to do spiritually good things before the fall into sin, Adam and Eve were able to do spiritually good things. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Philippians too. Yeah. And, and that's, that's kind of the main point that we see here that after the fall into sin, that in Colossians one verse 15, um, Christ is, is described as being the image of the invisible God. Um, so not just, not just how the invisible God makes himself seen, um, but using that term, the image of God, where he makes himself seen also in his spiritual character. Um, that this is the will of God, and this is the the one person who keeps that will entirely and perfectly, the way that Adam and Eve were were created to be, and the way in which they they lost in that whole intervening time, and the way in which all people have lost and do not have that image of God. Okay, it'll it'll become clear. Um, boy, I thought there would be one here from um, from Ephesians as well, but if we look at Colossians three. Verses 9 and 10. Colossians and Ephesians are, um, are kind of like sister letters, I guess we would say. They have a lot of the same content and a lot of the same structure. Um, so looking at Colossians 3, verses 9 and 10. Do not lie to each other, since you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self which is continually being renewed in knowledge according to the image of its creator. And so in, in Colossians here, you know, two chapters previously, we just heard that Christ is the image of the invisible God. And now he says in speaking to, um, speaking to Christians that you Christians have put on the new self and that this new self is renewed in knowledge or in instruction, if you prefer that term, instruction in line with the image of its creator. Um, and so that, that, that 
perhaps helps to almost complete the circle on what exactly is this image of God. Um, that this image of God was lost in Adam and Eve's sin, that this the, the loss of the image was passed on parent to child, that the image is seen perfectly in the person and work of Jesus Christ, and that this image is renewed in part among Christians as they do what he says in verses 8, 9, and 10. As Christians put off the wrath, anger, malice, slander, and filthy language and lying that are characteristic of the old self, which Cain, Abel, and Seth were all born with, I would say make, we could make that connection there, and that Christians are now encouraged to put on the new self, um, which is only renewed through, through the knowledge of God, um, and in that new self, which is the image of its creator, or in line with the image of its creator. That the, new, that the Christian now puts off sin and wants to do holy things that are in line with the image of God. And the only way that we know what those holy things are is based on the word of God, which tells us what is morally good and what is morally bad, according to, according to the Lord. So that almost completes uh, our circle. Uh, the last one will be 2 Corinthians 3. So just a little bit before Colossians. Try this again. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. <laughs> Looking particularly at uh, verses 17 and 18 of 2 Corinthians 3. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. But all of us who reflect the Lord's glory with an unveiled face are being transformed into his own image, from one degree of glory to another. This too is from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And so this, um, this also helps us to understand, you know, talking about the image of God in this life, that that image of God is seen or reflected as we continue to grow in our life of sanctification. As we continue to grow in faith and godly living, as we continue to grow in knowledge and applying that knowledge in our everyday life, um, the knowledge of what God's will is and, um, and what God wants us to be doing. And then how do we discern and you know, decide and make decisions about and practice, um, act according to that will in our lives. And so I think, I think with that, you know, that, that eventually brings us full circle, that the image of God, that Adam and Eve um, were essentially human both before the fall and after the fall, which is to say that they have both body and soul before and after the fall that they also had this spiritual characteristic of the image of God or the likeness of God before the fall. They lost it in the fall and they passed on, they did not pass on the image of God, but instead they passed on their own likeness after the fall. Um, and then that this image of God is, is, re is seen perfectly in the work and the person of Jesus Christ. And that this image of God is being renewed among Christians and within Christians. And that this image of God is characterized by Christians um, choosing godly actions according to the will of God. And that finally, um, that this image of God is, is, in a sense, a reflection of, of who God is, you know, spiritually, morally, ethically, um, as Christians live according to his will in the world. And I guess, I guess that's the last part from 2 Corinthians 3, um, that we are, he says, with unveiled faces, we are being transformed into his own image, that this um, can and probably and is and should be an ongoing process for the Christian's entire life. That when God brought you to faith, you know, that, that was an instantaneous event, um, but the growth in faith and godly living will continue throughout, you know, hopefully as long as you live, um, it can continue throughout a person's entire life, um, both as they face new temptations or, or new decisions to make, as well as they become more acquainted with the word of God. Um, and, and I mean, just as an example, you probably see that from your, from your own heart or from your own life. Or if you talk to um, an older Christian, somebody who's older than you one of these days, um, then, and you just ask them or talk with them briefly, and you'll quickly pick up that, that this person who has, you know, decades upon decades of experience has a far more, 
<laughs> far more tender conscience than even you know nearly anybody else you would ever run into, um, because that and and sometimes. You know, sometimes that means we just need to go through the basics again and say, well, Jesus died for all people. And that really means Jesus died for your sin too. Um, but sometimes that is also that, that awareness of what I have done in relation to the will of God and, and how even the, the smallest little thing that, you know, I'm sitting at the nursing home table and I, and I answered gruffly to the person who's sitting next to me, um, where the, the smallest thing that they may do weighs pretty heavily because that's not who they are or who they want to be. Um, I think in practice that, that sometimes is how that, that might look. And, um, and each particular case obviously is different and you address them a little bit differently. So I think that's, that's nearly everything on the image of God. Any questions on that? Yes. Yes. Um, so, yeah, and, and so that's that's the uh, kind of yes, but. Um, so the question: If Adam and Eve had not sinned, would we be living in heaven on earth? Um, spiritually, yes. Spiritually, we would have the full experience of of unity with God, of wanting what God wants, of there being no shame and no no separation of any sort. Um, as to, but at the same time, heaven itself is, is a place, um, and earth is separate from heaven. Um, and so heaven is still, heaven is still heaven. And it was a place that God created, um, sometime during the seven days of creation. Um, even if it was, you know, the way that sometimes people talk about the creation of hell as a creation by default, um, hell is hell is also a place that doesn't take up space. Heaven is a place that doesn't take up space. Um, and so if Adam and Eve had not fallen into sin, we would experience all the joys of heaven. And maybe it would be just like walking from one room to the next, you know, like I, I've got all the full fellowship with God here, full fellowship with God there. Just this is earth and that's heaven. I guess that's the short answer. So then, uh, yeah. 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 So then uh, filling in the blanks at the bottom on, um, this would be the last one, the most important of the image of God, its heart and core was the holiness and righteousness. So holiness, um, righteousness as a, as a status or a state of being, of uh, being completely, completely without flaw, completely innocent. And holiness is righteousness in action. All right, that wraps us up. We'll close with prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for all of your blessings, um, especially the clarity of your word, where you tell us who we are and for what purpose you made us and with what blessings you gave to us at the very beginning, as well as the blessings that you have restored to us uh, through the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. We ask that you continue to give us um, discernment and wisdom as we seek to apply your word in our lives to reflect your will and to reflect your image um, to a world around us that desperately needs to hear the good news of Jesus. All this we ask to the, to the glory of your name we pray. Amen.